is the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. Way more interesting than anything you're listening to on NPR. Probably less exciting than what you're watching on OnlyFans. Bruh. We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Socks, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to the Electile Dysfunction Podcast with Ashton Cohen. I'm Ashton Cohen. I'm joined today by Andy Schley. She's the chairman of the Calvin Coolidge Presidential Foundation. She is a multiple New York Times bestselling author of several books, particularly on the topics of economic political history, uh, including The Forgotten Man, A New History of the Great Depression, Coolidge, and The Great Society. You may have seen many of her works in the Wall Street Journal, one of my uh, favorite authors on these topics. So, Andy, thank you so much for being with me. I'm glad to be here, Ashton. So, one start up here. So, we are in a situation right now, the inflation rate, highest in 40 years. We're on our way to experiencing unprecedented energy prices in this country. Our government has engaged in an unprecedented amount of spending recently. 40% of all U.S. dollars were created in the last 18 months or so. And so since the Depression or the World War II era, the average person in this country has never been more directly affected by the results of federal government policy, particularly in the you know economic sphere of things. Um, and we're not that far removed from 2008, which we're still living with some of those consequences. And so if we want to understand how to think about these problems, what we're facing, what we're continuing to face, it's instructive to look back at what's happened before, look at our history, and uh, you're one of the best people to do that with. So let's start off here. With, your scholarship has been focused on some of the most impactful moments in our political economic history. What do you think are the biggest misconceptions, particularly re- with respect to the role of the government in our economic policy um, that's continuing to sort of have a negative impact on our society. And, and what I mean by that is, are there any like incorrect economic lessons that uh, we are drawing from our history today? The main incorrect e- economic lesson we draw from our history is that government can always make everything better. And so one, one of the things that people often sort of praise today is like things like the New Deal and how that, you know, that was such a resounding success. And so, you know, we just have to spend our way out of these sorts of problems. You've, you've obviously had a considerable amount of scholarship on the New Deal. What are people missing about the New Deal? Is, did, did it actually uh, help us in, in getting out of the Great Depression? Why is, why is that narrative problematic in your opinion? Well, if you look at the data, you'll see the narrative is problematic. Uh, the unemployment rate was above 10% the whole time. That's all you need to know because, well, we care about the unemployment rate. I mean, if our unemployment rate were 10 or 12% today, we would find that bigger news than a 7% inflation rate. Uh, and if it that high rate, one in 10 unemployed, abided for 10 years, we would call that a, an economic debacle or some big word like that. It really would be a tragedy. That was that period. Um, before, you know, the, the uh, in my book, The Forgotten Man, I discuss the inflation or deflation management alternately of that period. But the period that seems to me most analogous to the current period, Ashton, is the early 70s, which I treat in The Great Society, uh, my recent book. And the situation in the 70s was the government thought it could figure out how to halt inflation, and it couldn't. 
Um, so in that book, I have a chapter about the Fed chairman from that period, Arthur Burns, um, and it's called Burns Agonistes because Burns actually um, understood that uh, restraint was necessary and uh, maybe uh, tighter interest rates were necessary. But the president, which who happened to be Nixon, Nixon was a terrible economist, wanted Burns to have lower interest rates to, to help Nixon um, set the stage to do whatever else he wanted uh, in Vietnam, uh, in the next election. Uh, and Burns kind of wanted not to go along with Nixon. He was the world's leading uh, monetary economist at that time, or that's what he thought of himself. And he was pretty high. He was the dean of the economics profession. But he gave in out of political reasons. Uh, he wanted Nixon to like him, actually. And Nixon was pushing him. Presidents beat up on uh, Fed leaders all the time, Fed chairman. And so Burns gave in when he knew he shouldn't. And that's why the chapter is called Burns Agonistes. And the result was a period uh, of, of awful uh, inflation and also slow growth, what we call stagflation that endured quite a long time. When people tell you the 70s were purgatorial, that stagflation, including the inflation, were a part of that. What role do you think the gold standard, going off of the gold standard officially severing that tie in 71 played? Uh, a serious role. The, the, we went off the gold standard in stages and in great society. I described that. Uh, it was kind of an exercise in denial. We'd um, cut, you know, when you really don't like what a data point tells you, sometimes you abolish the data point itself. Mm -hmm. And that's what happened. Um with uh, the gold, the, the doll, you know, uh, the amount of gold we were supposed to have against dollars. If you go back and look um, in the old days, we we're supposed to have X gold for Y dollars. That we we got rid of that before. We were already off of the gold standard mostly, but right. the symbolic event that was very important for world markets and for the U.S. and for the agony that followed was we closed the gold window. Is the phrase they used um, in '71 with. Arthur Burns' complicity, unfortunately. That is, we stopped uh, giving foreign governments gold when they came to our window at our central banks um, or New York Fed, say. Uh, so really, um, and that showed that the U.S. didn't care at all about inflation as a government. And therefore, when, you, when a people or international markets know that a government doesn't care at all, well, then inflation rises because inflation expectation rises as well. You know, you know they're responsible. And uh, so you don't expect much from them, and you you know you you're uh, so that that was the the event um, from seventy one. We also betrayed our foreign partners, Japan in particular. Paul Volcker was later Fed chairman and did much to correct the errors of Burns. Describes uh, with a Japanese central banker co-author what it was like in Japan when they learned the U.S. was doing all the things it was doing, closing the gold window letting the dollar slide and a lot of other things without any warning to Japan because we were us and we were macho. So we thought um, we could just do that. Anyway, I think it's a fun chapter in my Great Society book because it describes all the people who were complicit in an inflationary decision and how the exquisite denial at work. So Matt, you know, it was almost like a play. Mm -hmm. yeah. uh, I think it's a good time to write a play called Camp David, because that's where the meeting took place, where our economic leaders decided to trash our economy, but wouldn't admit it to themselves. Yeah, there was there was an interesting situation right before, like you mentioned, once we sort of severed that final tie with the gold standard, uh, it was no longer redeemable for gold 
from from other countries, right? And so, like in, in the late sixties, France would send their warships over to like New York City to redeem their gold, and that was essentially calling our bluff about our you know redeemable status with the dollar and gold. With respect to the fudging of numbers and changing how things are calculated, a lot of people point to was 1979 when we start to rejigger how we measure inflation. Do you think that was do you think that was a deliberate effort to, you know, mislead the public and make inflation look not as bad as it is? The inflation is very hard yeah. to quantify and there are plenty of debates about it and it doesn't break down right, left, Democrat, Republican. If you to put it in children's language, if you're looking at your phone um, and you treat it economically as the same cell phone that your father had when they first came out, those big devices. Um, well, maybe it's not. It's a lot more. It's a camera. It's a computer. Uh, so therefore, the fact that the price is higher or um, doesn't matter because you have a, a computer, not just a bad cell phone. Uh, and therefore, the price hasn't gone up that much, given what you're getting when you buy a thing called a phone. That's essentially the debate. Is that thing called a phone so much better that price increases don't matter so much and aren't evidence of inflation. And there's, you know, this matters because we have, uh, since the 70s, since Nixon did this, um, in particular, we have a lot of indices uh, where pay is raised depending on inflation, social security payments mm -hmm. or colas right. at work. So if the inflation is rather less because of this effect, and there's some technical names for it, but you don't need them, then, well, then the amount paid out to people, the cola can be smaller. Uh, and so it's very political. Uh, and so the um, the government always argues hard that actually is inflation is less than people think because it will have to pay more if inflation is great. Uh, mm -hmm. So you want to remember that. Why does the government say that? Because it's worried about the colas, right? Uh, its own colas, its own inbuilt colas in cost of living adjustments in our social welfare state. They're not just mm -hmm. measuring inflation. They're measuring how much they're going to have to pay. Right, right. You don't okay. want to send your child to an expensive college you talk down the college and you don't say, well, that college costs one fifth more than another <laughs> right, college yeah, I'm yeah, thinking of. Yeah. So it's an argument taking place. I do the same thing with my girlfriend's purses. <laughs> right, right. It's an argument. Oh, that purse is the wrong color. It's actually the wrong price, right? So yeah. there you are. Um, so there you are, right? And that happened massively. And they, they didn't really know what was going on. One of the things that seemed to me most ironic was um, the, you know, labor unions used to be very powerful in the U.S., uh, particularly in auto land. And, um, well, when workers don't have enough money, they go on strike. Labor unrest goes along with inflation for that reason. Mm -hmm. Even when they're colas, they don't always capture what else is going on. So in Great Society, I describe a strike of the workers in the labor union office, the United Auto Workers, which is a mighty, mighty union, um, its own white collar or particularly, I think, pink collar workers went on strike ag against the union leaders. So instead of waging strikes against the mighty auto company, the union leader found himself um, enduring a strike by workers in his 
union leadership office. And that's what we call an inflation irony. And there are a lot of them, right? Inflation is a little bit dizzying uh, and strange things you never expect happen. It was very uh, much an irony for the leaders at the UAW. They thought they were the ones who decided when to strike and what about and what to demand. And suddenly their workers in their office were striking against them. And respect to the inflation and how it's connected to our monetary policy, do you support the argument that the you know significant expansion in the uh, you know Federal Reserve balance sheet and all the increase in M1 money supply has caused the, this current bout of inflation that we're dealing with? There are two. I mean, y- you can pick a school to explain the monetary situation and get into a very tedious fight. There's utility in a few of the arguments. One argument is inflation is always and everywhere a monetary phenomenon, as Milton Friedman mm-hmm. said. He's in my Great Society book as well. And it is. If you create a lot of money, you too much money chasing too few goods. But there's another factor, which I hope um, people will be getting at as much as possible uh, now, which is the more real, genuine economic growth, particularly growth in productivity there is, the more the economy will absorb the extra money. If the economy is really growing faster, not um, then the inflation will matter less. You can think of it as a liquid you can sop up through a stronger economy. But there are kinds of economic growth that are suboptimal that aren't really growth, um, what some economists call malinvestment, bad investment, where money's going somewhere just out of political reasons. And that would be all our stimuli, our um, payroll protection, and so on. Is that really growth um, when you pay someone to stay home? Not necessarily, right, right. right? Even if they buy something from Walmart, so it real the high qu- the kind of growth that absorbs inflation best is high quality growth involving productivity mm-hmm. gains. A new device is invented that enables you to use less gasoline or, or something like that. So you, if you um, want to get rid of inflation, there are two ways to do it. One is to raise interest rates or tighten money. Uh, you know, of course, banking shifts, but right. basically that. And the other is to take steps to ensure the economy um, is able to grow even faster, particularly in productive areas. What would such steps be? Well, they would be lower taxes so businesses can um, be free to invent things. Um, Lower taxes, in particular on capital gains. Uh, There were very high taxes on capital gains Mm -hmm. in the period of, you know, Richard Nixon and so on. And that slowed growth. So, when we were coming out of the 70s, one of the most important things we did was we cut the capital gains tax dramatically. Uh, it's something called the, well, it's known as the Steiger Amendment for a, a congressman who led it. And the, the Wall Street Journal had an editorial long ago in the 70s about that called Stupendous Steiger that's worth retrieving. Anyhow, uh, the the Reagan recipe, as it became, um, the best part of it was that it wasn't merely tight money um, uh, or the Fed type money, but it was also um, truly growth oriented tax ambitions. That right, and and that's what's important now. It's not just a saving exercise. We also have to find ways to make the U.S. economy grow productively, and that's usually a moral liberation exercise than a stimulating. So destroying our energy industry isn't exactly a way to achieving more growth, I assume. Well, well, I don't know a lot about that. I'm sure you can talk about that. But what I do know from uh, the 30s is that, or the 
60s, 70s is the stimuli uh, didn't have quite the effect um, hoped for. You know, when people argue about the 30s, the Great Depression, one, they say, well, usually the argument is kind of a false argument. Uh, people say, um, well, the 30s would have been better if there had been more stimulus. Um, mm -hmm. World War right. II shows that because we spent a lot of mm -hmm. World War II. If you look at federal spending, well, it really went up just, I used to have a chart on my wall, uh, federal spending going up dramatically around World War II. Right. That think of it. Um, I think a good analogy is um, a man bleeding on a you know operating table. Give him a transfusion, he looks better. But you may not be um, fixing the underlying ill. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. what stimulus spending is. Everybody looks healthy when they've just had a transfusion, and everybody who was sickly, right? That doesn't mean you're curing it, the underlying right. sickness. The underlying sickness of the U.S. economy was, in the 30s, poor policy, particularly poor policy that was anti-business, big class warfare. Um, that abated because we needed the big companies to help us fight World War II. To, instead of uh, prosecuting big companies, suddenly they, these companies were being invited to the White House and uh, given love because they were manufacturing weapons or helping out somewhere or the other. Um, so when we laid off business, um, during World War II, that helped the recovery even post-war. And after, um, you know, people who commit errors don't always, they're never going to say they were wrong, but you can see by their behavior that they've learned something that was true of the U S government subsequent to World War II, because, uh, some of the egregious things we did in the new deal of the thirties, we, mm -hmm. we, quietly undid later. The, a big example would be the, the labor law of the 1930s, which was a real tiger called the Wagner Act. And it get, basically gave unions huge power to hurt the life of business and commerce. Well, after World War II, um, there was some understanding that a very high um, price of labor in a very demanding sector, if you think of labor that way, was counterproductive for growth. Um, and so we passed a law called Taft-Hartley, which effectively neutered the, the Wagner Act tiger. Why do you think pulling a bow in this FDR New Deal thing? Because he's regarded as essentially the best president of all time, even to this day, even by historians, right? They have him and Lincoln essentially, usually one and two. Why is FDR yeah. regarded highly, is your question, Ashton? Um, because he was a good hero in World War II. I just actually did a, did a little like short essay about that for... Prager, uh, the UK, Ro Roosevelt was essentially a Navy person. He was a good admiral. He was never technically an admiral, but you think of him as water person, right? He knew every crack and cranny that we're talking about Franklin Roosevelt of the East Coast. He was a good sailor. He could sail big ships, even government ships, right? Um, and that was his, uh, to use a dry land metaphor, his sandbox. He wasn't very happy with econ. Didn't like it. Not comfortable with it not his area, you know. So he was a bad economist as president mm -hmm. and an arrogant economist because the New Deal had many, many laws, just like uh, the Great Society program did, or sometimes we hear calls for now. And most of them didn't work out. They made unemployment worse. Um, but once Roosevelt got to be the leader in World War II, he was what we consider a good leader. The Nazis were bad. We fought the Nazis and we prevailed. Mm -hmm. Okay. They were terrible. Uh, that was the Navy side of Roosevelt. Mm -hmm. And in uh, our culture, war trumps, you can see it with Ukraine pushing COVID out of the news. Right. 
war trumps domestic. Mm-hmm. War trumps economics often. And it's sad for people who care about domestic and economics, but that's the way it is. And that's because war is a serious thing. Um, it touches everyone eventually. Uh, so I think people remember Roosevelt so so positively because of the war, and they kind of block out the other part. Mm-hmm. And with respect to going into like sort of the the Great Society era, which was our our next sort of biggest experiment with government spending and you know, trying to cure poverty and all these domestic programs. 1970s, basically, I'm sure you've seen that chart with it from like the 1970s, like usually 72 to 75, something like that. And you see wage growth stagnates for middle income people. What do you think are the biggest causes for that? You know, I'm going to give a counter. I don't know about that particular data, data set, but I'm going to give it. There wasn't much respect for the productivity side of the economy. There was plenty of respect for the brawn side. I mean, it, there was a period when um, factory workers did fairly well or appeared to do fairly well. Um, and there wasn't much prospect of, it, there just didn't feel like there was much prospect of growth for idea people. And that's the opposite to today. You know, now we think, well, geeks, you know what we think of geeks and have thought that for a while. But there were some... Um, yeah, the, uh, uh, there were some changes in policy that mattered that nobody talks about. Uh, I uh, by Dole, a law that made clear who owned university developed property. Uh, well, if you're in a lab and you don't know who's going to own the patent when you come out or, or get the profits from it, where's the profit incentive, right? And that affected, um, well, it affected, you know, venture capital enormously when Bayh-Dole was passed, because suddenly there was clarity at universities about who owned what. If you know you own something, then you're likely, particularly IP, then you're likely to be more interested in developing it. So mm-hmm. um, that was a change. I think the cap gains tax to a rate cut to which I referred before was in effect too. Um, it, it, we didn't expect ideas to have such power in the 70s. Mm-hmm. And then also there was this inflation and there were really silly government programs that we gradually undid. You know, remember, think of Bill Clinton saying welfare era is over. Right. right. A Democrat, right? Yeah. Uh, we gradually saw that growth mattered more than social programs in government. Mm-hmm. Uh, it took a while. It was it was a painful period. The 70s were junk years, unfortunately. Yeah. And and so we, we have a bit of that today as well, as, as we referenced earlier. And with all these trillions have come into the economy recently and sort of we're just adding on to our our national debt uh where do you see all this going i mean it seems like it's politically untenable for certainly the democratic party but maybe even certainly for parts of the republican party because no one's really tackling entitlements or things like that to curtail spending to any significant amount or even curtail it at all like how, how does this outcome how does this outcome sort of you know manifest itself like where are we going as we continue to rack up trillions of debt with no end in sight thank you for that question ashton um the republican party or the democratic party gazes at its navel and says how will i find the guts the tenacity the strength of character to restrain spending it's so hard right oh i don't know if i can do it um, well, the way entitlements are structured, are structured, I can't do it. We can't do it, but we've got to find our inner virtue and be like Calvin Coolidge, my hero, and do it. 
that unfortunately isn't a likely event that we find those guts that gut, right? But it is likely that the U.S. goes into austerity mode. Why? Because our currency will be challenged. Mm. It may be challenged by some new product or maybe challenged by a combo of a foreign currency um, and, I don't know, a commodity and a country. Who knows? But the reason we can go on like this um, is because we, uh, being the most important currency in the world, what we call the currency of reserve, gives us right. enormous advantages. We, When you're the currency of reserve, which the dollar has been for a long time, uh, you it can be lazy. And eventually that goes away. That's what England learned. It used to be the current, mm -hmm. right? Pound, sterling right. used to be currency of reserve. Then it wasn't, even though England mm -hmm. was the greatest in the world, right? Mm -hmm. It went away. We became currency. Our dollar became the currency of reserve. And we have that enormous uh, cushion or illusion or whatever you want to call it while we're currency of reserve. But no currency is the coin of the world forever. Right. Uh, and, uh, you know, if we had this conversation 20 years ago, I would have been talking about foreign governments. Maybe the Swiss franc would become the mm -hmm. currency of reserve supplanting the dollar. Now, um, you don't even necessarily need a government to do that. And that's mm -hmm. part of the, you know, the cryptocurrency, the alternate currency discussion. It doesn't right. have to be, I don't know what, right? We could discuss uh, to supplant the dollar. Many of the current dollar alternates are simple expressions of distrust in the dollar rather than mm -hmm. products with actual merit. Others have great merit. Who knows? Um, but one day something will happen to our economy that we will have to make the cuts whether we want to or not. So the main thing is to think about which cuts and how and which which growth we aim for in order to get out of a tightened, straightened situation. Yep, and not uh, not wait until it's too late to get to that point because then it really stinks. Yeah, it always it does really stink. I mean, that's what... <laughs> Uh, the the uh, we've we benefited um, from the weakness of other lands um, and the limits of technology and got to enjoy being the currency of reserve for a very long time. One thing I noticed about the 1920s was there was no complacency in the 20s that we would always be number one economy. We were kind of number one coming out of World War One because England shouldered much of the burden of World War One, mm -hmm. but it wasn't sure. So we were in a virtue race with London, like two people on a diet, right? Mm -hmm. You know, see, seeing who could be more virtuous first. And London tended to go more social democratic, whatever the party was called uh, uh, in the 20s. It spent a lot. They they created what's called the dole, which we still view as a pejorative word. That is uh, unemployment payments insurance. Um, well, we went a more free market way. And when we, relative to London, appeared more virtuous and free market and saved well, then um, that solidified our position as world leader. It's what solidified our position um, economically, you know, uh, the more virtuous path. So it, it, we had foreign competition, which people forget mm -hmm. in the 20s, mm -hmm. yeah, unlike what we have now. Yeah, absolutely. Well, thank you very much. Thank you so much for joining us, Andy. Uh, where can people find you? Oh, I'm the chairman of the board of the Coolidge Foundation. So please come to the Coolidge Foundation. And I am working on a few new books. You can certainly see see the books on Amazon. Um, I'm not being a columnist right this sec, but there are plenty of old columns of mine online. And uh, let's see what else. We're making a movie about Calvin Coolidge. That should be good. Oh, that'd be great. Absolutely. We'll put the, the link to the to the books in the uh, show notes. So thank you so much for coming well, on. Well, thank really you. If you enjoyed our show, please click subscribe to stay up to date with our YouTube channel and podcast. And give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we can keep delivering guys some great content. Thanks for listening, and we will be back next week. Fans.
We're going to talk about the issues that really matter. Our country, our economy, the Fed, QE, GDP, BTC, NFTs, AOC, the CCP, Cardi B, Ow. Yeezy, Yellow Sox, Iran, Joe Biden's dementia, Come on, man. and probably sex robots. We stand for a free and open debate and exchange of ideas. And if you disagree with anything we talk about, you are a racist and no better than Hitler. What? Let's get started.